Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah. Well, welcome back, everyone. You're listening to a new episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. And today I have a very special guest, a Miss uh, Bron Williams. Bron, welcome. Oh, great to be here, Doug. Thank you for having me. We look forward to uh, the discussion today. You may see in her graphic, she calls herself a bias or the bias specialist. And uh, as she and I talked in our kind of pre-work, I was uh, struck by the significance of this in, in terms of many of the issues that are going on in our business world around us today. Uh, for many reasons, both uh, locally here in the U.S. where I am, and you're going to denote a little bit of an accent in her voice, at least to some of you, it'll be an accent, maybe not where she's from, but uh, uh, she's on the continent of Australia and uh, hails from the Melbourne region, and uh, we'll get into that, but the, the thing that struck me about our discussion was we as leaders need to be sensitive to the biases that we may bring to the work. Uh, you know, when we show up, we can't help but have certain kinds of bias and the opportunities are multiple. Um, it's not just about race or gender uh, and even ethnicity, but um, there, there can be many other things that block us from being effective leaders. So that, that's really kind of the focus I was hoping we could, we could touch on today. So with that said, Bron, tell us kind of how you got into this space. It's a very interesting story. Thanks, Doug. Yes, um, one of the things that I try to make clear when I'm talking um, with clients around the issue of bias is this for me is not an academic exercise. Like I could have done, gone and done a whole lot of research, which I am doing, but I could just inhabit that sort of cognitive space. But for me, this began at a per very personal level. When um, back in 2012, I was then a Salvation Army officer working with the Salvation Army here in Australia. And the Australian federal government had recently reopened the offshore processing centres for asylum seekers in Nauru, which is a little tiny island in the Pacific, um, and also on Manus Island, which is part of Papua New Guinea. And so in conjunction with the Nauruan government, they reopened this um, processing centre. And I went over there with the Salvation Army as part of their volunteers and staff, initially just for four weeks as a volunteer, not because I had any burning desire to work with refugees or to work in the tropics, but because I couldn't think of any reason why not to when I was asked. And so I went not really knowing what I was going to get myself in to and certainly on those first couple of days I'm thinking my goodness what have I done because it was so different 
but two things made themselves abundantly clear very quickly. On the very first day, we'd been up for about 24 hours. We'd caught the midnight flight from Brisbane and had a full day of orientation. And the last thing we did was go down into the uh, refugee camp to see where we would be working. And as I walked through the chain link fence past the security guard and started to see, like at this stage, there were around 400 men and they were all men at this stage from a variety of different countries from the Middle East, from Sri Lanka, some from Africa and Vietnam. Uh, my body started to react. I was getting, um, my shoulders were tensing, my stomach was churning. Um, and I think I was probably in that fight or flight mode. Didn't recognise it as such because I hadn't experienced my body doing this. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, <laughs> What's going on? I'm in my mid-50s at this stage. So, you know, I wasn't some sweet young thing who hasn't experienced anything of life. You know, I had a bit of an experience under my belt. And as I reflected on that over the, the initial four weeks that I was there, I realised that that was actually my body telling me I was afraid. And I'm thinking, I don't know why I'm afraid. You know, these were men who were in trauma. They'd, you know, they'd escaped persecution. They were now literally locked up in a refugee camp. There were security guards everywhere. I had no need to be physically afraid. I was well-treated. The um, men were very respectful of me. But what I started to do is I reflected on my own upbringing and my own experience of life to this date. This was the first time I'd actually spent in the company of people who were very different to me, different skin colours, you know, all various shades of brown and black, and here I was, a white person. I only spoke English. There was all these languages around me that I didn't understand. I was raised in the Christian tradition, was working for a Christian organisation, and I knew most of these men came from Muslim countries. And I started to think about my childhood and think, gosh, I haven't actually mixed with people who are not much like me. My area of Sydney, largely white, very monocultural, very conservative. And I realised that somewhere along the line, I'd learned the difference was a threat. And that was why I was afraid. And reflecting on that a bit more, I realised that even though I'd been brought up to um, accept everybody for who they were, that this difference is a threat that I was, that I somehow absorbed was part of a latent racism. I, I would have said I didn't have a racist bone in my body. And so this was a bit of a shock to realise just my upbringing had and my experience of life in those first 50-odd years of my life had led me to this point. I went back. Um, I actually asked the Salvation Army for a full-time appointment on Nauru. I knew this is the place I needed to be. And as I worked more with the Nauruans who were on the various different teams, so they're Pacific Islanders um, and I started to notice that the white expats who were in the various teams had a fairly dismissive attitude towards the Nauruans on their team, you know, thought that their ways were, you know, their own ways were better. And I could see a sense of that in myself as well. You know, I thought, hello, you know, developed country, first world country, university educated, of course we would have better ideas. And so I sat down with uh, Fatima who headed up the Salvation Army team with the Nauruan 
section of it and I told her what I was observing. She said, oh, we know that about you guys, but we just accept it. That just floored me. <laughs> and um, as I started to explore this, so I was learning another thing about myself that didn't actually fit with how I saw myself. Of course, I came across the term white privilege for the first time. So I'd lived five and a half decades and never come across that term. And then I started to realise, actually, again, purely because of my skin colour and my upbringing, I had this sense of superiority that I, you know, I could do what I wanted. I, you know, my ways were best. So they were two biases that had made their way into my thinking purely because of my life experiences. This was a really personal thing for me. And that was the beginning. So 2012 was the beginning of this journey for me that's taken me now into the place where I now work with um, a variety of different organisations, peak sporting bodies, government departments, corporates, to talk about unconscious bias, but from an individual and a personal level, not just from an academic or cognitive level, because this, this has to be personal because it is personal. Well, that's... Um quite a compelling statement and, and very much a testimony of uh, really keen self-awareness. I, I think uh, it's safe to say there are many among us that go through a whole life without ever agreeing to uh, pause and look at that lens and say, you know, essentially what's wrong with this picture. And um, uh, so I, I applaud you for certainly that reflection and self-awareness. And it's interesting now that you've sounds like you've kind of taken that on as your own you know, body of work uh, going yes. forward. How, how let me start. Boy, there's so many things I can think of to ask and start with. But let, let me ask this one. So you say now you've taken your work and you're you're working with the larger corporations and agencies mm. to address these things. What's the typical framework when somebody may call you in for a consult? How how do they describe the problem that they think they might they might be having? Oh, that is a great question. You know, the one phrase that people use regularly is that they don't know what they don't know. I hear that over and over again because people, um, corporations, businesses are becoming more aware with, as you say, we've talked about, you know, racism, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too, you know, gender bias, ageism, all of these things are much better understood in the last five to 10 years. And people are beginning to understand, businesses are certainly seeing that these things need to be addressed, but they really don't know where they want to start. And sometimes they have heard the objections, you know, around all the unconscious bias training doesn't work or, you know, we're doing, we're doing some training through a portal, an online portal. Sometimes management is concerned that doing this sort of training might bring up some difficult emotions for people as they um, are confronted with things about themselves they didn't know. But I always say to people, and you talked about the word self-awareness, 
like that to me is a lifelong journey. You know, we get a whole life to get to know who we are. And that's part of what I do is help people understand how they, how they operate. And so I encourage uh, people who talk with me initially to really um, understand that any sort of training, and usually we start with some sort of awareness training, telling people what bias is, how it turns up in the workplace, what and some strategies um, that we can do. It's to say, don't try this once. It's like getting riding a bike when you were a child. You didn't get on that first time, fall off or have the front wheel wobble and then go, well, bike riding doesn't work. You did it again and again until you um, mastered the skill. And I say that to clients, that this is an ongoing process. Once you become aware, you start to grow in yourself around what you see. Um, and then you can start to look for things in a more structured um, way. And I also encourage people to say, yes, this will sometimes bring up difficult stuff in the workplace, whether it's at an individual level, or you'll start to see things in your business or your, you know, your documentation that you don't like. And it's not easy to look at those things, honestly. But if you're doing it alongside someone like myself, you know, any sort of specialist or consultant who can stand with you in this process, then you can make the changes that you want to see because this has to be about what client wants for their business, for their organisation, for their staff, how they yeah. want them to grow, <clears throat> develop and be the best workplace they can be. Well, thinking about it in terms of individual leadership, impact and influence, mm. uh, when, when you and I finished our first meeting, it made me uh, begin thinking of a number of things and uh, a couple of examples of they're going to come across as strange biases, but examples I've lived through and worked through in my own business life. Um, I, I knew of a manager once who absolutely abhorred the smell of popcorn out of a microwave oven. And that was one of the most popular snacks in the break room, right? But mm -hmm. he had a division of 400 people uh, spread across a couple of floors in his department and he had a departmental policy. You could not pop popcorn in the break room. Wow. And if that's not a very severe bias, I don't know what is. And, and again, all due respect to the major social issues we're facing that are much more grave. But my point is, I think as leaders, we have to be careful when we do talk about this subject of bias, because we may have some very strange ones we're bringing to the table, and they seem like nothing to us, again, because of background and experience. Real quick, a second example, um, when I first built my own company, I hired a female executive to join my team. It was a lady that I had worked with for a number of years in other capacities, uh, we were never employer-employee. We were colleagues of, of different companies working together, but the opportunity afforded itself. I gave her an offer. She came to work for me. And the first day, she announced that she wanted to establish a policy that the women in the company could not wear open-toed shoes. 
she didn't like the look of female toes in the workplace. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was like, just dumbstruck. I said, really, you want to, that's one of your first moves. That's, that's what you want to start with. And uh, for me, I, I live in the Houston, Texas area, and we are more uh, temperate most of the time uh, weather-wise, and most of the days, um, it's just simply comfortable to wear sandals or pumps and not closed-toed shoes. And so uh, it, it was, and it, it became a very severe sticking point for this person. And um, so anyway, my point is, again, I, I don't want to minimize the social significance of the bigger issues, but I'm challenging those among us listening as leaders. When we talk about this idea of bias, the list can be long of what you might be spun up about and realize you're creating trouble in your workplace for having that bias, whatever it may be. So look, yeah, that's great. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm. I totally, I, I totally agree. And we more readily see the big things, as you say, the racism, the sexism, the ageism, the disability discrimination. We see those things, and we rail against them. And we need to, you know, we put thing, policies in place. But it is those little things that will actually destroy a company, will we'll build a toxic workplace because, as you say, the biases that have been uh, part of, particularly a leader's way of thinking, that they give no thought to, they then become the divisive points. And I often say that beginning to understand about bias is like having a silver bullet your business you know that one thing you think why why am I not achieving what I want to why can't I go to that next level and I'm not saying this happens all the time but you can be fairly certain that there will always be a measure of bias in our decision making and that's one of the key areas that bias influences and both of those even though they seem like minor things you know the popcorn and the, the open toe shoes, they were both decisions that were made for those particular companies that actually then caused huge divisions in that. Now, the popcorn, the person with the popcorn um, issue, that actually may be, you know, a health thing, but they need to get that sorted out because most people like popcorn. The person with the open-toed shoes, they need to sort that out for themselves too because, as you say, where you work, I'm currently sitting here with open-toed shoes on because in the warmer weather, as we are down here in Australia at the moment, it's in summertime, there is no way you want to be wearing closed-in shoes. So for leaders, understanding that looking at their own biases is like that magic silver bullet for their business with their decision-making to see where is this getting in the way? Because one of the ways we can get confronted by biases and think this is too hard or I don't want to look at it. But if we think of bias as a data point rather than just a descriptor, so the bias, when we discover a bias, it's telling us something we didn't know before. We go back to that question, we don't know what we don't know. 
when if we see the bias in ourselves or someone gently points it out to us, then we have something more that we know now. We have a data point that we can work from and build on and think, okay, what changes do I need to make? Because now I know this about myself or about my business or my workplace. What do you say to the corporate leadership team that thinks they can somehow hold a workshop, have a town hall, have a discussion, and then come up with an all-encompassing answer to the way the workforce should be reacting to some of these questions? Well, I'd say unicorns are not real. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, because I had a wonderful conversation with um, uh, someone in senior management in one of the banking groups here in Australia. And that was her, she used that terminology and I loved it. She said, you know, because they were looking at how they could address bias across a variety of workplaces, some in Asia, some here in Australia. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking we probably need to get in a, a variety of different consultants rather than finding that one magic unicorn. And I said, yes, I'm so glad you're thinking about it along those lines. I, I think all of us like a quick fix. And we live in an age um, where doing things fast Getting quick results, um, you know, we call it a you know, can call it a microwave age. Everything happens instantaneously, and I think we try then to transfer that to the change in human beings and change in uh, the way people think. But we're much more like glaciers, <laughs> inch by inch, a little bit. You know, you look at a child. We expect a child to take 10, 12, 15 years to grow to adulthood and we think that's normal and yet we expect ourselves or our workplaces to change overnight. So I, of course, when people want that, as and as you would understand, you can't just go in and say, you're wrong, <laughs> you know, you, but you can point management and leaders to the next step that they can take. Because in the end, I believe that people are intelligent, they want the best for their businesses. And although they say that they want change to happen immediately, we all know that change takes time. And all good change is incremental. It happens slowly. So I always start where a client happens to be. If they just want some awareness building, and training, that's what I give them. And then in six months' time, a year's time, 18 months' time, when they're ready, they will come back to me and say, actually, I think we probably need a bit more now. Because it, it actually takes time for people to absorb this information, this new way of thinking into their lives and their decision-making. Because, you know, we do take time to learn new things and to just sometimes change the way we look at ourselves. Well, and you you may have seen this, and I'll ask you to comment on what I'm getting ready to say. I often run into executives who somehow want to look at bias, and they, they're thinking in terms of um, diversity, equality, and inclusion. So they're trying to reshape their 
company culture to be more open in those areas. Yet what I see, they're trying to solve that in classic business thinking. They're trying to say, well, okay, here are my three variables. I'm going to put them together. I'm going to give it a weighted factor X, Y, and Z. And you put all that together, the answer ought to be X. And then why isn't everybody happy? And um, the way that manifests itself when they have these town halls, for instance, they will take a targeted population and they will say, all right, how do we make it better for you? And among that targeted population, if you could poll every member in that audience, you're going to get a different answer on what they think is fair treatment, fair and equitable, inclusive treatment. You're going to get different answers. Mm -hmm. So as an executive, your, your broad brush hope for an answer falls apart right on the spot. I mean, it's dead on arrival. So how do you see ways forward to help business leaders do more to make these environments uh, bias free, I guess is the word for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I, um, I'm not convinced we can actually do away with bias because it's part of how human beings think. But we can become more aware of our own tendency to bias and what that the implications are. Uh, a company I spoke with a couple of years ago who, as I was in conversation with them, they were working with bias quite well. They, and the woman I was speaking to with said, we try to keep bias front of mind in our decision-making. So that's what I was saying about how change is incremental. If you get, can get to the point where you and your staff understand that bias is simply part of how we think. It manifests itself in a variety of ways, in racism, in popcorn bands, in, you know, please have closed-toe shoes. It manifests itself in a lot of different ways, but all of us have bias as part of our about thinking process. If we understand that, again, we come back to it being a data point. So we remove any sense of shame or guilt around it. This is just how I think as a human being. But if we, if we start there and go, okay, I am going to bring my biased viewpoints to this decision-making, then if we accept that as a fact without any sort of morals or ethics attached to it, then we can actually sit, stop and go, well, what don't I know? What haven't I considered yet? We can ask that next question. And that's one thing I always say to leaders is ask the next question. Questions are hugely important when working with our biases because it comes back to that statement, we don't know what we don't know. But if we ask a question, we might actually find that out. And particularly when you are um, in a team situation, you're wanting to, obviously, you know, as a leader, you're wanting the best for your staff and you give them what you think will help and then you ask what what next and it doesn't yep. mean you have to implement something the next week but you listen and you hear the things that you can't yet hear because yep. someone else tells you yeah that's great that's great 
Well, Brian, this has been powerful, and it's hard to believe we're kind of already up on our time slot here. I, I think uh, this has been great information for people to think about, and I hope it certainly provokes some ideas. Uh, let me ask you, if someone wants to get in touch with you directly, what's the best way to do that? Oh, flick me an email at info at bronwilliams.com. So that's my web website is bronwilliams.com. There's uh, contact forms there or info at bronwilliams.com will get straight to me. Well, great. Well, thank you for being part of our program. And uh, it has been very insightful. And I will encourage my uh, leader friends out there to take this to heart. Uh, put that on your next uh, checklist of your cycle. If you're doing your own uh, self-evaluation and reflection and ask yourself, am I operating and carrying around any biases that are unfair or um, uh, disruptive to the environment I'm trying to create here. So, Bron, again, thank you very much for being a, a part of the show. It's been a pleasure, Doug. Great talking with you. All right. And that's it for today, folks. Uh, thank you very much for listening in. I look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you. All right. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.